welcome. Good morning. This is the last session of the conference, um, a breakout session. I hope that you've had an enriching time this weekend. I know that this conference has been really important in my life. I started coming when I was a first-year medical student a long time ago. And so God's really used this conference um, and very important in my journey to where I am. So um, this is my name. I don't say it out loud because I'm being recorded so that people can access this on the web. I work in a place where I could bring danger to myself and others by being associated with the missions conference. So please um, don't take any photos and um, be conscious of sharing my name and that sort of thing. So I'm a family medicine doctor. Um, I went to school here, right here in this town, to medical school. And then I did family medicine training, followed by an obstetric fellowship. And after I completed my fellowship, I worked in West Africa for two years in the World Medical Mission Post-Residency Program, of which I'm a great fan of that program. And then I came back to the U.S. and I worked with refugees for four years. And um, that is the first time that I encountered female genital cutting. And so if I think about all the things I've learned now after spending two years in the Horn of Africa where the prevalence of female genital cutting is 98%. And the things that I know now, I would have been better at providing care for women that had been submitted to this procedure um, when I was in the U.S. and working with refugees. Um, this is a sobering topic. Um, last night, Eileen talked about how when you work amongst Muslims and, and the hard places that you'll suffer along with your patients. And so this isn't, this isn't an easy topic to discuss, but I'm glad that you're here to hear more about it and to learn about it. And I would challenge you as I'm going through this information this morning that you reflect on this verse from John 16 where Jesus said, In this world you will have trouble. Um, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And I just was listening to Rick Donlin presenting on justice and the fact that we live in a fallen world um, and we are a part of the kingdom, but the king has not yet come. And this is a gross evidence of our fallen world that we live in. But think about the victory that we have in Jesus and what he can do to help these women. So um, this is where I work in the Horn of Africa. And um, this is what I look like when I go to work. Um, this is my housemaid and good friend. And this is what I do. I teach family medicine residents in the Horn of Africa. It's the first postgraduate program in the country. And we're training family doctors to provide the whole spectrum of, of family medicine care. Um, we're looking to refer two more family doctors and a general surgeon to be a part of training. So if you or anybody you know are called to work amongst an unreached people group um, teaching, then please be in touch with me. Um, we, we need the help. I'm going to show you a video clip of a woman from Sierra Leone who speaks about her experience of female genital cutting at the age of 11. Nobody asked me if I wanted to come to me. All I remember was my mom came home one day and said, I'm taking you on a holiday. I was so excited thinking, woohoo, my child doesn't want to go on a holiday. We ended up in the bush now. And there was trusting my mom to protect me, look out for me. And it ended up being the worst day of my entire life. Before I knew it, my mom was pinning me down while this old lady came at me with a rusty looking knife that had never seen sun or water, but you remember it was brown and dirty. And she decided to proceed to hold my clitoris, which I didn't know that's what it was called then, 
and cut it inch by inch. I screamed to get my mom to get off me to stop what was being done. She just said, hush, it's going to be finished soon. And when the old lady was finished, she took my scissors, threw it off like it was the most disgusting thing she's ever seen, and walked off. For the next couple of weeks, I bled a lot, and I was in constant pain, and still did not understand what was done to me. My mom never explained why this was necessary. She just said, you're now a woman. So this morning, we're going to um, delve into this topic a little bit. So I want you to be able to identify the four types of female genital cutting. We're going to talk about complications associated with this procedure. hope that I can give you some tools so that you can practice competent care for women who have undergone this procedure. And then we'll spend some time talking about the cultural attitudes that have led to this persisting to this day and talk about efforts for eradication. So I use the term female genital cutting. This is the term um, preferred by the WHO to talk about this procedure, but it's also known as female genital mutilation, and it's sometimes abbreviated FGM or FGC. Um, When you're speaking to patients about it, usually the English translation from their from their language would translate as female circumcision, and that's often a more gentle and less judgmental term to use when you're talking with patients about this procedure. Um, the WHO definition is that it's all procedures that involve partial or total removal of the female external genitalia or any other injury to the female genital organs for non-medical reasons. And usually this occurs... Um, before puberty, so most commonly it's done between the ages of 8 and 11, but some cultures perform it in infancy, um, and so it just depends on, on where you are, the, the type that they do. So where is this prevalent? So this is a test in your African geography here, but the red areas have a greater than 80% prevalence and the orange are 50 to 70% prevalent. So it's something that occurs in um, Africa and in a few countries in the Middle East. This graph is from UNICEF, and it shows the percentage of girls and women aged 15 to 49 who've undergone FGC. And the WHO estimates that there are between 100 and 140 million women and girls subjected to FGC in the world. And in 2000, this is an old statistic. There's an estimate of 400,000 women in the United States living who have undergone FGC. And so if you notice the countries in red, um, Egypt, Sudan, Somalia, and then the Somali people that live in Kenya and Ethiopia, and then on, in West Africa, Guinea and Sierra Leone have greater than 80% prevalence of this, con- of this procedure. So we'll talk about the four different types of FGC that are defined by the WHO. The first is how the young woman on the video described. This is the removal of the clitoris, and it can be partial or total removal, and also the prepuce, the skin around the area. In some countries, this is referred to as the Sunna type. In Egypt and Somalia and Sudan, they they call this the Sunna type. And there's a picture here that depicts um, what this would look like. So, This is normal female genitalia, and so the, um, just the, not just, but the clitoris, and actually this picture of me, 
this is actually, somehow the pictures got messed up, but this is the picture of type 1. So the clitoris and the prepuce have been removed. And in this picture afterwards, this is not where it's been sewn, it's just scar tissue that has, been, that has formed from this procedure. So type 2 is excision, and it's a total or partial removal of the clitoris and the labia minora, and sometimes excision of the labia majora. And so you'll see in this picture where even parts of the labia minora are removed. And this is scar tissue that forms. This isn't sewing that's been done. It's just how the tissue scars. And worldwide, type 1 and type 2 are most common um, by far, especially in West Africa, um, Type 3 is called infibulation, and this is where not only the, um, there's been cutting, but also there's been sewing. And so somehow all my pictures got messed up. Um, so this is, yeah, so then, um, yeah, when I imported it to Word document, somehow something got messed up. But I don't have a picture of type 3. But um, in this type 3, the vaginal opening is sewn all the way down so that there only remains a small opening. The labia majora is completely sewn up and leaves just a small opening for urine and menstrual blood to flow out. And this is the most severe type. It's prevalent in Egypt, Somalia, and Sudan. And type 4 is any other harmful practice, kind of not otherwise specified, any other practices um, like stretching or pricking or piercing, incising, scraping, cauterizing. Um, UNICEF uses a term of nicking, and um, there's been some, some push to make the uh, procedure less invasive. And in the setting where I work, there's a local midwife, very well-respected in the community, and because the community demands something done, she will go and she will nick the clitoris. So she'll take a, a needle and nick the clitoris until blood is drawn and, um, and so that the family and everyone is appeased to do something. So that's, that would be type 4. So how is FGC performed? You heard the story of the young woman in the beginning in the video about a rusty knife. And sometimes it's glass. Sometimes it's a razor. Um, these are also often done by traditional practitioners in a home. Sometimes age mates, girls of all the same age, are collected and um, this procedure is performed all at the same time. Um, usually an, an older woman... Um, the girls are held down, and the, an older woman would perform it. Often um, thorns are used, especially in type 3, um, to sew the labia closed. Um, girls are, are tied down, and afterwards their legs are often tied together um, as the scar tissue forms, and they uh, are there for healing. Sometimes herbs are used or traditional medicines are used to stop bleeding or to cause the scar tissue to form. Um, there's a controversial move to medicalize this procedure, so procedures like this can be done in medical settings. I went to a talk yesterday on gender-based violence, and um, the speaker showed an advertisement in Egypt for a doctor who is advertising female circumcision in his clinic. So what are the complications of this procedure? So 
Obviously, the, um, there can be bleeding, so the tissue is cut and not necessarily sewn back together. So women, um, girls can have bleeding from this. They can have infections. So in one case series done in West Africa, up to 15% of the girls had local infections after the procedure was done. Some of them developed sepsis or bloodstream infections, and some of them even developed tetanus from the procedure. Um, other girls have developed urinary retention. Oftentimes, after the procedure is done, the girl is kind of kept um, at home or in a quiet place. And you saw in that picture the girl was tied, her legs were tied together. And sometimes the girls are not allowed food or water for days so that they're not urinating or defecating that might disturb the scar tissue that's forming or the healing that's going on. And obviously, if you have a traditional practitioner, somebody that doesn't understand anatomy, there can be injury to the urethra, to the vagina, the bladder, and the rectum. So these are the early complications that are associated with the time that the procedure is performed. But there are also late complications. And so women can have urinary complications the rest of their lives. And in another study, they showed that of the complications that are prevalent, 29% of them are urinary complications. So women can have chronic urinary tract infections, especially in type 3. So if you can imagine the, the perineum is completely sewn up, except for a small opening, that that would be a risk factor for her to have an ascending infection so that bacteria on the skin would go up inside and would travel to the the bladder, and then the kidney. Where I work, we see a lot of pyelonephritis, a lot of kidney infections, and I think that this greatly contributes. And some women may have such frequent urinary tract infections that they require continuous antibiotics to prevent infections. Um, and there can also be strictures within the urethra as well that would cause urinary complications. Women can also have infections. So... Um, FGC has been associated with increased risk of bacterial vaginosis, so the overgrowth of the normal flora of the vagina that can lead to discharge and itching, um, as well as increased risk of herpes simplex virus, and as well as theoretical risk of HIV. So no studies have been able to link HIV with, with FGC, but if a woman is performing this with unsterile conditions, then she could transmit HIV on the instruments that are used to perform the procedure. As well, when the woman um, has intercourse, there will be trauma to the perineum, and that can be a conduit for HIV to be introduced. So FGC is also associated with scarring, so there can be fibrosis or um, fibrotic tissue in the scar. Some women, especially African women, are at higher risk for having keloids, that really dense scar tissue that can form. This is a picture of one of um, my residents' patients of an inclusion cyst. So this is type 3. This is a picture of type 3. So if you see um, here, this is a cyst that is formed in the scar tissue that's anterior to the vaginal opening. So she's had three children already, so here's her episiotomy scar from her deliveries, and this is the small vaginal opening that she has. So her clitoris would have been up here, but it has all been scarred from the procedure. And she has this large cyst um, in the vulvar area, and so she's, um, at the time she was pregnant, and so this would have been something that would have caused obstruction of her labor. So 
we drain the cyst, and then um, you can actually take do a cyst removal. We didn't do that at the time of pregnancy, but in the future she can have that cyst removed. You can also have hematocolpus, which is blood that isn't allowed to f- come out of the vagina during menses. And so girls can have um, a lot of pain from that, painful periods, when the blood continues to collect inside the inside the uterus. And so many women describe vaginal and vulvar pain as well as painful periods. And then women are often subjected to um, painful intercourse. Um, Obviously, the first time a woman has intercourse, in some cultures, a traditional attendant or maybe her mother-in-law would open the scar tissue. In some, it's just that her husband opens the scar tissue on intercourse. So 78% of women with FGC report painful intercourse. They also have vaginal dryness, lack of desire, and inability to reach orgasm. And what about the psychological complications? There's an, this is a, an area for great studies. So all of you with research minds out there, there's a lack of information. And so there have not been studies that have specifically looked at the psychological implications. There have been a few studies that suggest that women with FGC have higher rates of depression, anxiety, and they may even have post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, from the, from the event. There's a myriad of obstetric complications that are associated with this procedure. And most of this data comes from, um, th- from three places. There were two large meta-analyses that were done and were published within the last few years. And there was also a WHO perspective study that was done and published in Lancet in 2006 that um, studied 28,000 women in six African countries and um, matched them with, with women from that same country that had not gone, undergone FGC to look at some of the outcomes and to see if, if this procedure really has long-reaching obstetric outcomes. And it did. So it's associated with trauma to the perineum during labor, um, the need for episiotomy or cutting the vaginal opening to allow the baby to pass, and also more extensive laceration, so tearing of the perineum during delivery. It's associated with prolonged labor, um, as well as an increased risk of C-section. This is two of my residents doing a C-section here. Um, it's associated with instrumental delivery, the need for vacuum or forceps to assist in delivery, and then with obstetric hemorrhage after delivery, just difficult delivery in general. And actually, it's associated with perinatal death. And so... Um, one, one statistic I read said that for every 150 women that have undergone FGC, it leads to one perinatal death, so one neonatal death. So how do we, now that we know some of the complications and the problems that are associated with this procedure, how can we talk with patients, with a woman that we're faced with that has undergone this procedure? And so I know this is a busy slide um, and has a lot of things on it, and I just want to highlight a few. This is from a really great article that I recommend. If anybody is caring for women in the U.S. that have undergone FGC, this is from Mayo Clinical Proceedings in 2013. Um, and, and it goes through a list of questions and a list of ways that you can talk with patients about this procedure. And so 
I didn't do this very well when I was working with refugees here in the U.S., and so I wish I had seen this and had had some more tools to be able to respectfully and confidently talk with patients that had undergone this procedure. And so, you know, one of the things that you can ask is about her beliefs about the procedure. What do you think is good about being circumcised? What do you think is bad? Would you circumcise your daughter? Are you aware of the laws in the U.S. regarding this procedure? It's illegal in America. Um, and then also asking about, does she associate any of the symptoms that she has with this procedure that she's undergone? So does she recognize that maybe some of her urinary symptoms and her pelvic pain could be associated with this? Um, and, you know, and, and opening the door to talk with her um, about how, what she plans to do with her children, with her daughters, and how to proceed there. So the care that we provide really depends on the setting. So if you're working overseas in a setting where this is something that's prevalent, learn from your local partners on how to address this and how to intelligently and compassionately talk about this issue with your patients. Um, the other thing is to always ask specifically if you have a patient from some of these areas where I, I showed the map before, if you have a refugee or a a migrant or immigrant or maybe a college student that comes from one of these areas, you'll, you need to ask specifically about this procedure because in her mind, it's not a surgical procedure and it's not a medical complication. And so just being aware for you, having awareness about that, to ask specifically about it is really important. And then how do we provide care? We talked about all of the obstetric complications. So when we think about a pregnant woman who has undergone FGC, what are some ways that we can provide competent care for her? And um, one is that not all women that have had FGC require a C-section. So even those that have had infibulation, where they've had sewing to narrow the vaginal opening, a C-section is not always required. Um, and that's something that's created a lot of fear in the refugee population as they've come to the U.S., that when they deliver that they're going to have to have a C-section. And so being aware of, of things that we can do to help guard against having a C-section if possible is really important. And so there is a procedure called a de-infibulation where the, where the scar tissue is opened up. And there are two times that this can be performed. So one is during the second trimester. And this is the approach that's preferred by the Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynecology in the UK, as well as ACOG, the American College here in the US. And this is preferred, I think, um, because it prevents a scenario in which a woman would show up at a hospital and have a first-year OB resident on call who has no idea what he or she is doing, has not seen this condition before. Whereas if it's scheduled in an outpatient clinic beforehand, there would be somebody that may have a little bit more understanding um, with this procedure. However, there was a study that was done in Saudi Arabia with OB residents in Riyadh, and they randomized, um, they followed outcomes of women that presented in labor and had a de-infibulation during labor by OB residents. And there were no, the, the outcomes were the same. And so this is probably a procedure with some awareness that can be done during delivery, at the time of delivery. Um, another time that it might be useful to do in the second trimester or earlier in the pregnancy is if a woman's opening is so small that she cannot have cervical exams during labor. Um, we had a patient just a few months ago at our hospital who, um, 
who we, we talked about doing this earlier, but she refused to have it done during her pregnancy. She wanted to have it done during delivery. And um, she reached almost 42 weeks. She was 41 weeks and five days, and we were inducing her labor, and we couldn't even do an exam um, to, to be able to give her the medication we needed to to induce her labor. So we admitted her to the hospital. We gave her local anesthesia, and we did the deinfibulation. We opened the scar. And so this is what it looks like. So if you have the, the scar tissue, you would, um, you would take that scar tissue after anesthesia is applied, and then you would use scissors to just open up the scar tissue. And this is what it looks like afterwards. So very small suture, like 4-0 or 5-0 vicryl is used to, to sew up the areas that would be bleeding. Um, so this would be how it would look if you did it before the onset of labor. You could also do it as the head is crowning. So as the baby is delivering, you can open up the scar tissue, and then you would just repair like you would um, after an episiotomy or a laceration otherwise. Um, the other thing is maybe for some women that don't have such narrow openings, um, in our setting, the, the residents and the midwives that have been working there a long time are more reluctant to do de-infibulation where they open up anteriorly. They just tend to cut very liberal episiotomies. Um, and this is an area that needs research. And so these are, these are questions that we have on what has better outcomes. Is it better for us to de-infibulate the scar tissue or to, to do an episiotomy? And so... Those of you who are out there with research minds, come and join us, and let's look into this and get some good answers. So you've heard about um, the, the complications and the, and the things that, are, um, that can be associated with this terrible procedure. So where does it come from, and why is it persisting? Um, this is a quote that was in um, an article examining Somali attitudes toward FGC that was published um, in 2014, 2013, I believe. So the author says that, well, he doesn't say this, but he's, he's presenting a cultural attitude that says that ensuring that a daughter undergoes circumcision is a loving act, aimed not only to boost a girl's chance of successful marriage, but also to promote integration into her culture. A failure to circumcise daughters may result in a long-lasting stigma and shame on the girl and her mother. So if this is a loving act, we need to show what love really is. So some of the attitudes that contribute to the persistence of this, of this procedure um, are these deeply entrenched cultural traditions. In some places, um, not where I practice, but in many places in um, East and West Africa, it's a rite of passage. So it's, it's the way that a girl becomes a woman, just like in some cultures they have male circumcision at adolescence. This is a, this is a time when the girls, all of the same age, are taken aside. Um, maybe they're taught by aunties and, and older women inside their community, and, they're, and they become women. So they emerge from the hut or the place where they have this done as, as women. And it's a part of their gender identity. Like, like the girl in the video said, her mother said, you're a woman now. And so being a woman means being cut. Some cultures find it aesthetically pleasing. They find um, that, that the genitalia and the perineum, the way that God created, was, is not the way that it should look. And so this continues because of aesthetics. 
Um, some consider it a religious requirement. Where I work, if you ask people why this persists, they would say that it is because Allah wants it and because it's a part of their religious requirements. And we'll talk a little bit about this on the next slide. And they find that it promotes chastity and morality. It enhances cleanliness um, needed for prayer five times a day. Um, and also it's a way of maintaining sexual purity. So it's believed that it controls female sexual desires and maintains virginity before marriage and fidelity within marriage. Some cultures believe that women would run around having sex all day long if they didn't have this procedure done. And some also believe that the clitoris would continue to grow throughout a woman's lifetime and become the size of the penis. And so it's, it's a way of reducing the sexual desires. So um, FGC is not just practiced within is, Islamic cultures. Um, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church also practices this procedure. It's done at 80 days of life, and I think type 1 is typically done in the Orthodox Church. There are animistic um, cultures that still practice this, this procedure. But for the most part, if you look and if you remember the map that I showed you in the beginning, most of the places where this practice persists are Muslim countries. And at least where I work, most of the people believe that it is a requirement of Islam. So is there anything in the Quran that speaks about this? There's nothing that speaks specifically about female um, genital cutting. And actually, there um, some scholars would point to a verse such as this one that can be used against it, that says that there is no changing Allah's creation and proper religion, but many people do not know. Um, there are also hadiths. Hadiths are the sayings and the practices of the Prophet Muhammad. Um, do those speak about female circumcision or genital cutting? Um, there, are, there are some, there are, there are lots of hadiths and sayings and practices. Some of them are more reliable than others. Um, and most of the ones that are quoted to support FGC are from less reliable um, hadiths. And some of them, the word that is used can be interpreted d different ways. So depending on what side of the spectrum you're on, whether you're a proponent or an opponent of this practice, you can find hadiths that, that seem to support your, your viewpoint. And then what does the body of Islamic scholarship say about this subject? Um, there is no consensus, but it's not haram or prohibited. Um, and also, if you remember the, the map, the, the seat, the home of, of Islam is Saudi Arabia. Um, and many countries, there are only two countries in the Middle East that practice this. And so there are many places where Islam is prevalent that do not practice um, FGC. And... Um, as far as eradication efforts go, the, the history of this procedure isn't really well known. It's theorized that this may have come from Egypt. And so one of the types, the type 3, can also be called pharaonic, um, that maybe this came from ancient Egypt and came down into other parts of Africa. So um, this practice actually predates Islam in, um, from, from what we can tell. So... Eradication efforts uh, were started in the early 20th century. There were missionaries and colonial leaders attempted to outlaw. I came into this room yesterday and heard Jennifer and Scott Myrie, and they were talking about, um, about preventive health and ways that, that we come and speak into different cultures. And they pointed out in the 1920s and 30s that Scottish missionaries 
um, really pushed the government and pushed the culture as they were planting churches and getting involved. In Kenya, the Kikuyu um, people that used to practice this, uh, they, they were the first ones to kind of look at that culture and speak out against it. And so eradication has been going on for over 100 years. In 1979, there was the first WHO conference that took place in Sudan and Khartoum that sparked activism and eradication efforts. And all along, the WHO has been working towards complete abandonment of the procedure. They've avoided recommending reducing the severity of the procedure, so trying to get cultures where they do type 3 to move towards less severe practices or to medicalize the procedure so that we would take it out of the hands of traditional practitioners and put it into a medical setting, they've avoided those. They're really pushing towards complete abandonment and won't stop until, until that point happens. So let's think about some of the approaches to eradication that have been used in the last 100 years and probably more specifically in the last 30 years. Um, so these are some of the ways that people have proposed to eradicate and some of the methods that have been used. So one is health risk information. Doing what I've just done, sensitizing you to the complications and the problems of FGC. And so this can help stimulate resistance among lay people and help those that have had complications of the procedure to actually seek care. But it can... Um, be associated with just disbelief or poor quality of the information out there. And if you're in a culture like where I work, social norms are much more important than health risks. And so what, what your family and your clan and your community says is much more important than what a medical expert has to say. Um, another practice that's been used is conversion of excisers. So those traditional practitioners, the women who are out in the villages, who are actually cutting women, to provide other avenues of, res of, of income for them. So teaching them uh, using kind of a micro-enterprise system where you teach them a trade so that they have something else to do besides cut young girls. And that reduces the availability, but doesn't really do anything to reduce the demand. And sometimes that can just make it go into a place where it's done secretly and even more unsafely. Another method is training of health professionals, and that is, is both training nurses and midwives and doctors about this procedure so that they can provide competent care, but it's also the medicalization of the procedure, whether it's appropriate to have health professionals providing these services instead of traditional practitioners. And so... Um, that, that can improve the quality of the care that's given, but a lot of times um, there's, there's not really a, the, the practice continues, right? So it's, it's still continuing even though it's in the hands of medical professionals. So another method that has been um, quite successful is alternative rites of passage. So for those cultures in which FGC is a part of her becoming a woman, that... Um, the community owns this problem and they empower the girls and they're able to provide an alternative to, to the cutting practice. Um, but this is limited by the fact that it would only be helpful in places where FGC is actually a rite of passage. And sometimes there can be limited integration into the whole community. So the girls might be excited about it, but if the men and the husbands aren't involved, the future husbands aren't involved, the girl can still be considered unmarriageable. So another um, thing, another 
method is a community-led effort. And so you know, this is how we like to do change within communities, is hear what they want and get the community involved to eradicate something like this. So um, that's great because then the community owns the problem and they own the solution. And it often it addresses the underlying issue and, and promotes that social norm change that's so necessary. However, when you put things into the hand of the community, their decision on how to handle this may not be the same as ours. So a community might decide that instead of doing type 3, they're going to do type 2. And so that, that um, takes the problem out of our hands, and they may not choose to abandon if we, if we go to the community and ask them to address this problem. Another method or approach would be public statements. So having religious leaders, sheikhs, and, and government officials to come out and say, um, speak out against this procedure. Um, it can stimulate abandonment for those group members, so for people in leadership and in government. But I don't know if you're aware of this, but when NGOs and money and video cameras come to town, people are often willing to say things that they don't really practice. And so public officials and religious officials can make statements that they don't necessarily follow through. And finally, there are legal measures. So um, countries and states and places have made this practice illegal, and this definitely discourages the practice, but sometimes it just forces the procedure underground, and women have fear of seeking help for the complications that they have. So like I mentioned before, this procedure is illegal in the United States. It's considered by the UN as a form of torture, and these countries have outlawed FGC in Africa. Um, in Sudan, only type 3 is forbidden by law. That's the, the sewing. And in Nigeria, there are multiple states that have outlawed this. But this practice continues unchanged in the high, highest prevalence countries. So these countries have a prevalence greater than 75%, and the practice still continues at a high rate regardless of the fact that it's illegal. So this is where I give you my opinion and my views on this, that as we approach eradication, um, I think that it's important to have accurate health information. It's an important component of all interventions. We need to get the communities involved and doctors and midwives and nurses and people involved with accurate health information. We need to gain influence of community and religious leaders. So if, if you're in a setting where people believe that it's a requirement of Islam, the sheikhs and the imams have to come forth and speak out about the fact that this is not found in the Quran. It's not a part of, of the religion. And the evidence shows, though, that the most effective means for behavior change is peer group change. And so um, women need to come forth and decide and, and make the decision that it's time to stop doing this to their daughters. And not just women. Men have to be involved in this change. Because if, if men don't change, then the girls are still perceived as being unmarriageable. And, and the shame and the stigma will still persist within the family. And so this is a huge, huge cultural shift. And culture shifts take a lot of different interventions. It's not just one thing. So it's health information, and it's peer groups, and it's public statements, and it's legal measures. But it also needs to be sustainable practices. My residents tell me stories about um, 10 years ago, there were a lot of NGOs that were involved in our area, 
pouring money and resources, going out into the villages with video cameras and posters and lots of money. And the people would say, yes, yes, we're abandoning. This is a terrible thing. We don't want to do it anymore. And when the money and the video cameras were gone, they went back to the same practices. And so this isn't something that we, that we pour short-term um, people or money into. It's something that needs to have a long-term view with very sustainable practices. Um, one thing that helps is increasing the education level. So bringing education. I know the UN Sustainable Development Goals that have just come out in September, one of their huge focuses is education because they realize just pouring money into emergency medical care doesn't change the culture. And so everything that, if you want to apply for grant money from the UN for things under the Sustainable Development Goals, it has to have an education component because those are things that change um, it's been shown that when you educate women, the whole life of the family improves. So women do a better job of making sure that their kids get education and they get health care. And I can see in my own practice that you know, the male doctors that I teach, the residents that I work, they don't want to marry women that have had female genital cutting. They don't want women that have had cutting because they know that it leads to all these complications. And I would like to say that maybe they're a little bit more compassionate and they view women with the eyes of, of nurturing and love maybe um, a bit so that they, they don't want that to be a part of their practice. Um, and it's going to take a substantial amount of time. So the fact that in 35 years things haven't changed um, much, you know, these countries still have 98% prevalence rates of this procedure um, but some of it is reducing, and some of it is becoming less severe. And so this is a controversial idea, whether we go into places where this persists, these groups are so resistant to change, and whether we advocate for not doing type 3, but doing type 2 or type 1. Or if we just nick the clitoris with a, with a needle, will over time people see that that doesn't do anything to maintain virginity or fidelity. And so maybe over time... It, it won't be a criteria for marriage for a woman to have undergone this procedure because we've seen that it's, it doesn't do what it says, it, what they believe that it should be doing. Um, so I, I have a, one of my residents is, is an amazing woman. She um, decided when she was a young woman that she wanted to be a doctor, and that was in the midst of war, and she just persisted and kept on. She has six children. And when all of these NGOs were coming in doing FGC eradication, she was one of the, she was a nurse at the time, and she was very involved in, in work in her community to eradicate FGC. And so she knows a lot about it. But the most important thing that she's done is that she's not cut her daughters. And she won't let her mother-in-law take them and get them cut. And um, she is, and she publicizes that. She tells people, I've not taken my daughters to be cut and so that is, that is change, and that's a statement. And so this is a hard and sobering topic, but there is hope. There is hope. The church has been involved in Kenya for many years, and there are stories of success. The Kikuyu people don't do female genital cutting anymore. Um, and so the church has gotten involved and has spoken out against this issue and has, and has created change. And um, I think of, I'm reading a book by Tim Keller Jesus, the Son of God, I think is the name of it. It has like two titles. But he has this beautiful chapter on patience. 
like with a C, not patience with a T. And he defines patience as, as love over the long haul. And I think that's a beautiful picture. And, and one of the best pictures of patience in the Bible is Jesus. He's on his way to heal a daughter. A young girl has, is very ill, and um, her father has come to ask Jesus to, to help his daughter. And so he's on the way, and a bleeding woman with a chronic condition comes and presents himself to her. And so if you were in any ER in America, you would not go into the room with a woman that's been bleeding for 12 years. You would go and save the little girl who's dying. But Jesus stopped what he did, and he saw the woman, and he healed her. And, and it's that patience, it's that long-suffering, it's that love over the long haul that is going to be a way that we can impact and hopefully eradicate this terrible procedure. It's a harmful practice, um, and it is widespread across Africa. Um, and this eradication requires a change in the attitudes, time, concerted effort, um, this is, this is a time where we can be the William Wilberforce. You know, he spoke against a really terrible practice. And, and it's a time for us to maybe take that stand and take that courage to be involved. It is not going to be easy. It won't be easy. But we need to show what real love is. If loving your daughter is having her cut, that's not love at all. And so we have the love of Christ in us. And so we're called, we're compelled to share the love of Christ in hard places where they do terrible things like these to their to their daughter. So I just ask you today to think about and to consider how, how you might be involved and what God might be calling you to do to do something about this. Um, are you a William Wilberforce? Are you somebody that will stand up and speak out against this? Um, you know, last night I really loved what Eileen had to say, and she said, don't waste your life. Lose it in the service of Jesus. And something this, this complex um, and this terrible is going to take radical love. Um, I have, if you want to learn more about this topic, there are some great resources out there. There are stories of women who have gone through this. Um, Maurice Didier is a supermodel that came from Somalia, and she shares her story about this. Um, There's a book, um, Half the Sky, that has a few chapters about this, and a woman in Somaliland that's working very hard to eradicate this practice. Um, And these are my sources um, I have lots of, there's some things out there, but needs a lot of, of other areas. Um, so that's what I have to share. I'd be interested to hear your, your comments or your questions. We have 10 minutes, um, I think, or maybe 15, yeah, to, to address some of these things. So, yes. Okay. That's a good question. So she asked if after childbirth, do women request to be sewn back up? And that depends on culture. So often women in Sudan will request for them to be sewn back up. I've even heard stories that, um, like if if a woman's husband goes on a long trip, maybe he works in the capital, he'll have her sewn up for the time that he's gone. And then when he comes back, she'll be opened again. So um, it depends on, on which culture that you practice in, whether they're asked. That's obviously illegal in the United States. So if you had a refugee or a woman that came and delivered here in the U.S. and asked to be sewn back up, you, you could not perform that procedure for her. Yes? Can you, I mean, you 
Yeah, so one thing about what I do is I don't do any direct patient care. So I'm a teacher, so everything I do is is over a resident. And so I, um, I'm teaching them, and then, but I, I do still get involved a little bit. So, um, but you know, one thing I try to do is, is, is advise them to talk about this at every occasion. So when women come for prenatal care and antenatal care, to to talk about this and for them to make these decisions now about what they're going to do for their daughters. And something else that I'll commonly, the, the woman I shared about before that came and had to be induced for her labor, and we had to open up her incision for her to go into labor, she delivered a baby girl. And I looked at her and I said, think about what you have just been through. Think about the last few days of pain and suffering that you've had. Don't do this to your daughter. Think about this. And her brother is a nurse in our hospital, and he brought her there for care. And I went to him, and I said, don't do this to your daughter or your niece or your family members. Look at how your sister has suffered the last days. And so I think those are the opportunities that we have to, to talk into this and to re- keep chipping away at, at this institution that has been around for so long. Yes. No, they don't have, and I don't have the language ability at this point to talk about, to get to that point. Um, but I also know that it's, it's just really, sexuality is such a taboo subject within their culture. And so it's, it's not something that is, is a topic that, you know, people will easily address. And so um, I think that takes kind of the long-term relationship that, that isn't really prevalent um, at least at this point in a post-conflict country where you have the opportunity as a primary care physician that you might have in the U.S. where you develop a relationship with your patient and you see her, you know, for her antenatal, prenatal visits and then you see her as you're taking care of her children and, and you develop that relationship where she can have more trust and be able to open up about, about that issue. Exactly, right. So women that, that have had PTSD from the event, and then when they're having intercourse with their husbands, kind of reliving that event, it, it's, it's definitely out there. It's, it's something that we don't know a lot about. Yes? In the, in the countries where it's illegal, but obviously still practice, what's the actual written consequence? I mean, it's clearly not being done, but what's the written consequence for this procedure? Is it fine? Like, what's kind of being put out there by the yeah, and the question was, what, what are the consequences in these countries where it's illegal? And I don't know country by country. I do know that within the last year, made news, Egypt, is, Egypt has 91% prevalence of FGC, and it's a country where it's against the law. Um, but about a year ago, I remember reading on the BBC that a doctor in Egypt was actually um, imprisoned because a patient, a girl on which he performed this procedure, died. And so... Because because it was kind of revealed because of her death, then he was made accountable for that. And so I don't I don't know what the penalty was, and I imagine all of that varies from country to country. And I don't even know in the U.S. what the penalties are. Um, but and, and maybe that depends state by state. I don't know, but I do know that it is illegal. There are some questions. Yes. Mm. They make fun of and harass girls. Mm. 
great. Yeah, so she was just mentioning that even in Kenya where it's illegal, the pressure in boarding schools for girls to get cut is so severe that that contributes. Is somebody else over here? Yes. We also work in Kenya on the half side. One of the big obstacles we've had is that if we go into villages, uh, the men and the women separate immediately. And the men will always blame the women and say that this is a female issue. We have nothing to do with this. And the women will blame the men and say, look around. You can see we don't make any decisions here. We have not had much success getting the men and women integrated to talk about this together. Yeah, I mean, that's evident. He was just talking about that the men and the women are so separated. The men say it's a woman's problem, and the women say we don't make decisions around here. And this is evidence of the fallen world that we live in. We have broken marriages and families and people that don't believe they're in the image of God, and so women aren't valued, and, um, and women can't talk to their husbands within the marriage relationship. These are all just consequences of sin and evidence of the fall. And, and I, think, I think within a culture where that is definitely separated, then you work with that. And so you spend time investing in the men and talking with them about the complications and the things that go along with it. At the same time, you're talking with the women and educating them and getting to the place where they're, they're empowered and, and, and can be a part of making decisions to, to end this. Yes? Um, do the fathers have much of a say in this procedure when towards your daughters, or is it maybe the mother's I mean, it's the whole the whole cultural expectation. Um, Edna Adden is this woman from Somaliland that's an advocate of this, and her father was a because um, Somaliland used to be a British protectorate, and her father was involved in the British government, and she grew up um, going to schools in the UK, and he said, "I will never have my daughter cut. It will never happen." And she came back to um, visit her family, and her grandmother took her and took her to the village and had her cut against her father's wishes. And so it's still, it's both and. You know, the fathers have to be involved, but oftentimes there's this undercurrent of of shame that the woman is anticipating if she doesn't have her daughter cut. Yes? I think having a relationship, like I worked at a mission hospital, and one of the workers at our hospital, he had his first daughter, and he invited me to come to the ceremony, the circumcision ceremony. And so now I'm in a dilemma because none of us had ever been invited before, but I think it's wrong. And so I took him with me to maternity and let him see a woman have a baby mm. who had that done. And he wept. He cried as he watched that. And then we suggested an alternative rite of passage, and so he did that. But his fear, he truly loved his daughter. It was his firstborn child. And he wept, but he said, I don't want her to be a prostitute. That was his real worry. So I think having a relationship that he, he trusted me enough that he wanted me to invite me, that's a beautiful picture of, of how change occurs is, is that investment and that time and, and the way you're able to, to show him. And, and um, yeah, so that's a beautiful depiction of the kingdom. Yeah. Great. Anybody else over here? Children to get married, and they cannot see around that. And um, 
ensure that their daughters are virgins when they get married. And they said, if we don't do this, how do we ensure that? And in America, our, our culture is very toxic to teenagers coming. That Our girls are practically naked, and they're used to women that are covered and all of those things. And so I would just say be very sympathetic to your patients. Um, the, all the women I studied, not one of them was asked by the practitioner any questions about it in the hospital. And, um, and so they just were kind of ignoring it. And so I just think it's something we need to ask and ask them about, talk to them about it, um, talk to them about what they're going to do with their daughters and how they feel about it. And it definitely needs to be something that we really address here and are sensitive to. And even no matter how we personally feel about it, I think we just have to be very, we have to listen. This is a huge, huge change. Um, many of them said they want to go back to Somalia because they just don't know what to do with their daughters here in America. And so it's really leaving a huge gap there that has to be filled um, by Christ, really. So. Amen. Yes, there's two. Go ahead. Yes, and that's that's a huge challenge because in the setting where I work, um, I mean, a woman's only half has only half a brain and is only half as valuable as a man. And um, my friend will want me to tell the story about. I, I went to visit one of my friends. I came to her house. There's a wall around the house, and so the guard was there. Um, I knew my friend was there. She was sick. I was bringing her some medicine, and the guard said, nobody is at home. And my friend, the doctor, was in the house, but in his mind, nobody of value was at home. And so that is, those are the things that we're addressing and we're up against is the fact that, um, that you know, women aren't valued. And this is such a complex issue. This does have to do with the fact that women are oppressed. It's a method of oppressing women. Um, and so... So it's, it's not something that has an easy answer. It's something I fight against every day of, of asserting myself and, and being, being um, quiet and a, a follower as much as I can to, to be appropriate in the culture and the context where I work. But over time, I think, you know, my, my residents respect me. They don't, they don't see me as any less valuable than my male colleagues that are teachers. And so I hope with, with time and education and as the gospel goes forth, that those those attitudes will change. Yeah. I think we have time for one more question. Did you have a... I just had a comment. I work in West Africa. We see this, but I just want to encourage you here or overseas to claim the victories in this because this is a hard subject, and it's not going to be easily changed. But when you see those relationships being built, when you see one person making a difference in her family by not choosing because... Claim those victories and hold on to it because this isn't something that's going to be easily uh, changed. But And it is, I think part of this is a spiritual battle because it's mm-hmm. such a religious background as well. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that you've all come to learn about this topic.